So we'll sit together quietly for a period of uh, maybe 25 minutes or so. And it can be uh, helpful to have some clarity around how you'll attend to experience. Possibly using uh, some of the, the different breathing techniques using mental noting, labeling experience, using a kind of phrase or mantra, uh, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. <laughs> Just having some kind of clarity about how you'll attend And as always, we'll do it together. Supported by all that's shared. Supported by the collective commitment to uh, make this uh, space a refuge for each other.
Thank you. So we'll have a, a short period of, of walking, maybe 15 minutes or so, and um, you'll hear the bell and we can come on back for a, a di- Dharma dialogue. So uh, yeah, have a good walk.
I'm trying to my, turn myself a little bit so it looks like I'm having a conversation with you. But I don't want to turn too far, so I turned about two degrees. A little bit, okay, more or less so I can look at you. So I'm, I'm glad that we talked yesterday a little bit about that the notion of uh, bhavana, of training the mind, includes both the formal periods of contemplative practice, like the last silent hour that we spent, and, uh, and the pot washing, and the showering, and the eating, and, uh, and the studying and the reflecting about what does this all mean. And the re, um, reaffirming all the time the relationship between what am I doing and what does that have to do with where am I going. If where I want to go is to have a clear mind so that my heart stays open, when you think about it, I always think that that's such a, a wonderful um, fundamental philosophy that um, sometimes people say Buddhism is so grim. I think actually it's not grim. It has as its, uh, as its fundamental axiom that human beings, when they're not confused, are compassionate and kind. And actually that they're behaving in a confused way in a way that creates harm is just the, the fact of confusion and that practice is going from ignorance and delusion to non-ignorance, non-confusion and clarity. Someone has uh, written a, a new Dharma book uh, that's not called Awakening, it's actually called Calm Clarity. And that sounds nice, Calm Clarity. And the three uh, areas in which the Buddha uh, um, practice is divided is divided into perfecting um, uh, ethics, morality, perfecting the, um, the ability to work with states of mind and change its habits, and clarifying understanding and all the time cultivating more understanding, which refines and uh, redoubles the um, dedication to practice. Um, the more, in my experience, I have uh, more uh, zeal now to uh, stay awake because I'm more clear about when I am that I'm happier. It's not it really comes out in the end somewhat looks like self-serving, but I'm a happier person when I'm behaving myself and really scrupulous about um, behaving wisely. Did you, any of you have a chance to go up and look at the prayer wheel and turn the prayer wheel down there? Did you see it's got eight pieces on it? And did you figure out that those are the eight steps in the Eightfold Path? Who doesn't know a lot about the Eightfold Path? Who doesn't know a lot about the story of the Buddha? 
who doesn't know a lot about the Four Noble Truths? Who would like to know it all in the next 10 minutes? <laughs> because I can do that in the next 10 minutes. You want to know it? You want to talk? You want I'm going to show off. <laughs> okay. Ready, set, go. Once upon a time, about 2,500 years ago, uh, they say, all of this is they say, but if I'm going to do it fast, I leave out all the they says. Once upon a time, 2,500 years ago, a, a child was born to a noble family in a northern province of India, and soothsayers said to his parents, this child is extraordinary, and he either will be a great religious leader or a great warrior and king. And... Of course, having a great religious leader was not what his parents wanted. They wanted the king part of it. So they, in the story, they say they protected him from the kinds of things that promote becoming a great religious thinker and philosophizer. They hid him from all the realizations of death and loss and old age and sickness and death. And in some magical revelation, he actually saw when he was a young man, grown up, but he's still a young man, whoa, here's this thing that happens to people. They, go, they grow up, if they're lucky, they get old, then they get sick and they die, and you lose tragically people who are dear to you. And although at that point in the story, he had a wife and a child, he left that life as a prince and went off on the contemplative path, which was the way in those days in India people went to seek for wisdom. On his path, he cultivated very, uh, really uh, amazing powers of concentration and one-pointedness of thought. At the end of some considerable years of practice, he had not yet figured out, in his words, the cause and the end of suffering. And so he sat down one night and he said, I'm not getting up from here until I am clear about the cause and the end of suffering. In the night, his steady aura of loving kindness that he had set up around him through his capacity and his concentration skills, his ability to be able to beam good wishes and loving kindness and equanimity and stability out from him. All the forces that stir up the mind, forces of uh, lust and greed and anger and um, aversion, all those forces that attacked him in all kinds of ways in the night, he resisted because he beamed out such a steadfast protection of goodwill around him. Matter of fact, all of those slings and arrows of fortune that hurt people who have not protected themselves with a completely benevolent heart, all of those forces were transformed magically on their way towards him into flowers. They fell all around him down to the ground, and he sat perfectly clear, got up in the morning, and he said, I know why we suffer. He went on to stay there for a while and consolidate his understanding and then went out and for the next 50 years about, he traveled on foot in different places in India, 
people followed him and became students of his. And he taught people the cause and the end of suffering. The suffering that he's talking about is the suffering that we mentioned this morning. It's the suffering of making life and its ordinary problems into extra pain. We have, we have pain and we have woe. We have the ability through the habits of an uncultivated and unclear mind, we make life more difficult than it is by the stories we tell, by our resistance to opening truly to what's happening, by our inability to see through our own confusion. And that's what he went off and taught. He met five ascetics that he'd been teaching with before, and they mocked him from afar and said, here comes uh, Siddhartha, that um, Siddhartha Gautama, that monk that gave up the concentration path. Let's pretend we don't know him. Let's snub him and look the other way, so it says. But then when they came a little nearer, they noticed that he shone with a beautiful light around him and they knew that something else had happened to him. And they said, wait a minute, it looks like he's got something that we don't know. So they all stopped and he preached his first sermon, which is called the Sermon of Setting into Motion the Turning of the Wheel of the Dharma. And he said, this is it. Life is dukkha. It is unquestionably, continually challenging. It's, it's, everything is vulnerable. Everything is perishable. Everything is always changing. And unless we are able to adjust to the changes and live through them with grace, suffering happens. The first noble truth is the existence of instability, of dukkha. The second is that the cause of, not the cause of suffering is wanting things to be different. It's wanting things to be different from how they are when they can't be, is suffering. And sometimes when you say the cause of suffering, you're causing now and it's later. The inability to accept one situation, say, this is what's happening, I can't change it, is suffering. There are a lot of things we can change, and certainly those we do change, but we can change to say, like my friend Martha, who said, okay, this is a human thing and I've got it. I'm not any happier, but I'm not suffering. The mind is not saying, why me? It's imperative in the mind is suffering. It's got to be different. We could train the mind so it doesn't have imperative. The mind could be at ease and peaceful. And then the Buddha said, this is how you can do it. And he laid out eight steps for doing it. And the first three steps have to do with training morality, behaving in a way, acting in a way that's wise, speaking in a way that's wise, working in a way that's wise, so that one doesn't cause extra pain to oneself or other people. And then really training the attention so that it stays steady in a way that's wise, it stays alert in a way that's wise, and it stays dogged on its um, determination to, at every intersection in the road, choose the path that does not create suffering. All day, all life, we have the possibility at every challenge 
to move in a way that moves into wholesome states or move in a way that moves into unwholesome states. We're making decisions all day long, all life long. So you just have to make the decision to aim yourself in the direction of wholesome states. And the last two steps on the path are keeping in mind fully, where is it that I'm going? I'm going to a place where the mind recognizes it's clouded or not clouded and knows it so it could fix itself and is determined to do that. Tomorrow morning, we'll, as part of the... Monday morning, as part of practices, we'll recite uh, or we'll meditate on the five precepts that Matthew outlined last night as a way of using them as a contemplative exercise. So that's what the Buddha did, and that's what he said. And he uh, said... He trained monks. They lived with him. He trained them. He said, go forth, O monks, and teach this in the idiom of the people wherever you are, this really wonderful path to living. We don't get to do magical things like live interminably and never fall down or never get sick or never lose each other. All those regular things happen but we do them with grace and with equanimity and with compassion for ourselves and everybody else because we're all doing it together. That's the whole story of the Buddha. Isn't it? 11 minutes. Huh? 11 minutes. 11 minutes. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I said 10. What can I do? Okay. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, uh, <laughs> so... That's all based on progressing in the path is based on the idea that um, we're not going from here to there. We're really going from here to here and waking up and clarifying our vision all the time. He did that in his life and he was suddenly so clear that he dwelt in equanimity the rest of his life. You know, by the way, I don't know that the Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama, says that he's completely enlightened and free. But I recently saw a, a contemporary documentary of him, and someone said, do you ever get angry? And he said, yeah, I do. He said, uh, something happens, and I didn't want it to happen that way, and I get mad. Anger arises, he said. Sometimes I even shout, ah! And he said, as soon as I shout, it's out of me. And then I'm all right, and I just take care of whatever has to get finished. And I thought it was so really honest and good of him to say that, not I move through everything with such benign equanimity, because I don't think we're supposed to become not human beings. I think we're supposed to respond and react. I think I have a broader range of uh, emotional palate than I did 30 or 40 years ago because I'm not afraid of feeling grief-stricken. I'm really thrilled when I'm thrilled. Uh, so it's not, I used to worry that if you practice too much, you come out like a steamroller ran over your nervous system. That doesn't happen. It's just some of the, some of the energies that create un discomfort in the body, like fretting and worrying and remorse and regret and recrimination. 
they go away. They tone themselves down. If they come up, I, and I find myself thinking something like a recriminate, like a revenge fantasy, I'll say this, it'll feel bad. I think it for 10 seconds, and I think, what are you thinking? Don't do that, because it upsets your mind. It fills your mind with uncomfortable energy. So we become very much human, but we become the best kind of humans we can be. That's the story of the Buddha. There's another story that goes along with it, which is, this is part of the folklore, that Siddhartha Gautama in that life merited that wonderful experience of waking up to the truth of how things were because he had done so much practice in previous lifetimes. This was a, a cosmology that was uh, in the world 2,500 years ago that people lived successive lives and also successive incarnations, even in non-human incarnations. And there's a, a compendium of stories called the Jataka Tales, which are children's stories, which if you get a chance to go in the bookstore on Monday before you leave, you'll find coloring books and books for children and stories about the Buddha in a previous lifetime when he was a parrot and a, uh, and, a, and a jungle was on fire, and he ran back and forth and rescued people in his teeth and carry, rescued animals and carried them out of the forest. They're, all the stories have to do with a Buddha in a previous incarnation really selflessly serving other beings at that time, really working to perfect all the all the uh, parameters of, of goodness in one's heart, which are generosity and morality and renunciation and wisdom and energy and truthfulness and patience and determination and loving kindness and equanimity, all of which you have all experienced and we've all experienced. Those are human qualities. He perfected all of them so that he was completely and it's said that he needed to perfect them in order to merit the lifetime of waking up. So these are all archetypal fables. Uh, I don't even think about. I, I assume they're not literally true, but I have a great deal to learn from them, and I think about perfecting them. And there are people who actually take one of those qualities a month and work on it. For this, this month, I'm going to do patience. This month, I'm going to do... Uh, truthfulness and really have it as a template through which to really um, pay attention to their daily life in the world. So there's one more thing to say and then we get up to our discussion. When I was first taught uh, meditation, mindfulness meditation, and then later metta meditation. There's a certain formula that I came to understand about how, how this worked and how one woke up or became awakened or enlightened. And it started with you practiced meditation in order for insight to arrive rise in order for wisdom to arise, really, that all, all beings are suffering, that to be alive is to suffer, 
It doesn't mean to be alive is to be miserable every second. It means to be alive is to be vulnerable to suffering, which, when we realize everybody is, causes our hearts to become more tender and more responsive. So you start here, you practice, you become wise, so that compassion emerges and uh, you behave in all these wonderful ways of the heart. And I remember thinking to myself, what if I didn't have insight? What if a person didn't get insight and they meditated and meditated, but they didn't have insight? Could they not become wise? Could they not see actually the truth that everyone is suffering, that everyone is just like me, that everybody wants to lie down in peace and wake up in peace? I thought to myself, this has to be one of those equations that goes from left to right and right to left. Maybe instead of meditating and having insight into suffering, which gave me wisdom that caused me to respond with compassion, maybe I could respond with compassion, which would give me wisdom and then cause me to have insight and really make me more aware in, a, in an interior way. That clear to you, why don't I start? It's like in 12-step, in they say, fake it until you make it. Why not start over here? As if I have spontaneously all those qualities of the heart. And then from living in that way with people, responding to everyone with patience, with renunciation, with morality, with energy, with compassion, with loving kindness, I move the equation back the other way. So I thought about that a lot. And I like that very much. First of all, it's interesting to know that in Asia, most Buddhists don't meditate. You know, when, when, when I began meeting people oh, 30 years ago when I started to teach, and I'd go back east, my whole extended family, well, all of whom aren't living anymore, all my elders and aunts and uncles, I'd go for some big family occasion, maybe a wedding and another family would be involved and people would introduce me in the middle of a big wedding and everybody carrying on and dancing, singing, partying. And they'd say, this is cousin Sylvia, she's a Buddha, Buddhist teacher. And they'd say, oh, hello. <laughs> and, Wait a minute, Buddhist teachers don't just say, oh, hello. They talk and they dance and they eat and they party. And they marry, and they cry, and they laugh, and they sing. And as a matter of fact, Buddhists uh, worldwide are not known for meditating. The monastic edge of Buddhism has always been really the meditating edge. The vast majority of Buddhists all over the world are emulating behaving in kind ways, teaching morality, practicing morality, using the Buddha as their, um, what would the Buddha do? Keeping it, thinking of the Buddha and the paramis, the perfections of the heart that he had developed and say, I'm going to live like that. So there's a good, there's a good, um, what do you call it? A uh, what do you call it? precedent for being a Buddhist and cultivating the paramis. So, that's all I want to say as a lead-up. That's a big lead-up, bigger than I thought. But 
11 minutes for the whole history of Buddhism. <laughs> I thought we might all look at this piece of paper. What did you think of this piece of paper? Um, <clears throat> That's a loaded question. Yeah. Matthew didn't see this piece of paper until today. Right. Because it's a piece of paper that I invented. <laughs> right, right. Uh, they are all familiar qualities, but I did not have them memorized. And uh, they're good. They're good. Um, yeah, actually, that was that was really like the first um, uh, uh, first contact with 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 Buddhist practice. And it wasn't the first, but it was when it started to like really soak in. Was Jack Jack Cornfield's series tape series, like cassette mm. tapes on the Paramis? Yeah, and it's a long time ago. Yeah, it's a yeah. long time ago. Yeah. And I would, um, I remember I would like get, get my cassette player and I would take a bath and I would just listen to Jack and I would just be crying in the bathtub. <laughs> if that's not a desperate kind of image, but it was, there was just something about... Have you, you told anybody about that before? I, maybe never again, maybe never again. <laughs> I've not told Jack. He does not know uh, that. But That's anyway, it's archived forever. For yeah, the delete the recording, Mark. <laughs> um, it was. It was just. It was like. It was. I was getting a, a a taste of the Dharma before I even know knew what it was or something. It was just softening something in me, and so uh, so I, I have a very affectionate um, memory of this. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll share uh, just a few few re reflections on some of the the um, the way that um, we're sort of connecting two days, right? You know, now of of this this kind of steady, patient awareness, and now pivoting in a way towards. Uh, uh, the heart qualities of of, uh, of love and compassion, and uh, as Sylvia said, um, and as I'll re kind of uh, echo, the, these are you know these are converging, mutually supportive qualities, and there's one particular way in which I, I found that. Uh, the kind of wisdom side of the path supports the love side of the path. And uh, so, so now a number of years ago, maybe close to 10 years ago, um, I was at a, a lecture by, uh, with Joseph Goldstein, who Sylvia's mentioned a few times, this is in LA and uh, he did the, you know, he gave a talk and we did a sit and then there was a question and answer period. It was in this big, beautiful hall in, in Santa Monica and, um, and somebody raised, raised their hand. It was actually a friend, somebody I knew. And uh, a friend stood up in the hall and said, um, you know, 10 years ago, Joseph, I went to a lecture of yours and I asked you to sum up 
the whole of Buddhism in one sentence. And 10 years ago, you said, anything can happen anytime. Now we're 10 years later, and here I am again asking you a question. And in this past decade of practice, how, what has, what's your answer now? Sum up the whole of the Dharma in a sentence. And uh, Joseph said, um, he changed his answer. He said, um, the mind that's not clinging to anything. And this, uh, this theme of actually of letting go is so fundamental to Dharma practice. And on the one hand, it sounds a kind of um, maybe even dry or something like that. Like, well, what's, what's left in the wake of letting go? It feels like barren or desolate sometimes. But uh, I think the truth is that, that what's left in the wake of letting go is something like love. And that when we look really carefully, uh, greed and hatred depend on clinging. And love really only asks that we let go. So for me, uh, the, the deepest love is actually the fruit of letting go. But we actually have to see our kind of abiding uh, hope that we place in clinging. Like you hear the kind of like Buddhist uh, suggestion like, well, clinging does not lead to happiness. But... um, but somewhere deep in us, we hold out a redemptive hope in clinging, yeah? And we actually have to see the kind of way that it contracts the heart. But while clinging hurts, here's the bad news, letting go kind of hurts too. Yeah, it's a it's a very wholesome uh, experience, but letting go. Um, usually, what what the what, the way the kind of discomfort of that manifests is that uh, there's a process of a certain kind of grieving that happens in Dharma practice, and sometimes it's grieving for something or someone, and sometimes it's this very vague, amorphous sense that something is being, uh, falling out of our grasp. The heart is adjusting to some new reality. And so actually the capacity to, to grieve I think is, is foundational in the evolution of our 
path and freedom in our heart. This is, um, this is Andy, Andy Olinsky, a, a Buddhist scholar, says, um, why is it that humans tend to feel possessive and acquisitive about all aspects of their experience? The ownership of property is embedded in most legal systems, but in drawing out the implications of the Buddhist insight, one sees that this is an extension of a much more profound habit of the mind. It is this very sense of ownership that's directly responsible for both individual and collective suffering. Ownership is a node around which greed and hatred coagulate and is itself the expression of a profound delusion which gives rise to all sorts of strife. (coughs) Ownership is a node around which greed and hatred coagulate. It feels like we own so much And to let go is actually to let go of the, the illusion of ownership. To let go of the fantasy of like possession. And that doesn't mean that there's like we condone harm or anything like that. Or we, you know, give away everything. But it's the, that kind of fundamental fantasy of, of possessing, of possessing one's life, of possessing another being's heart. This is... Um, Catherine Schultz, and um, she's writing, um, reflecting on the loss of her, the death of her father and her grieving. And she was um, reflecting on on the the kind of ways we use language around losing, losing, losing one's keys, losing one's father. And I, I think actually beautifully like captures the spirit of um, a, a certain kind of, of letting, letting go, letting go of ownership. So she writes, um, it's a, a couple paragraphs here. It says, it's breathtaking, the extinguishing of consciousness. Yet that loss too, our own ultimate unbeing, is dwarfed by a grander scheme. When we're experiencing it, loss often feels like an anomaly, a disruption of the usual order of things. In fact, though, it's the usual order. Entropy, mortality, extinction, the entire plan of the universe consists of losing, and life amounts to a reverse savings account in which we're eventually robbed of everything. 
our dreams and plans and jobs and knees and backs and memories, the childhood friend, the husband of 50 years, the father of forever, the keys to the house, the keys to the car, the keys to the kingdom, the kingdom itself. Sooner or later, all of it drifts into the valley of lost things. There's precious little solace for this and zero redress. We'll lose everything in the end. But why should that matter so much? By definition, we do not live in the end. We live all along the way. The smitten lovers who marvel every day at the miracle of having found each other are right. It is the finding that is astonishing. You meet a stranger passing through your town and know you'll marry them. You lose your job at 55 and shock yourself by finding a new calling 10 years later. You have a thought and find the words. You face a crisis and you find courage. All of this is made more precious, not less, by its impermanence. No matter what goes missing, the wallet or the father, the lessons are the same. Disappearance reminds us to notice, transience to cherish, fragility to defend. Loss is a kind of external conscience urging us to make better use of our finite days. As Whitman knew, our brief crossing is best spent attending to all that we see, honoring what we find noble, denouncing what we cannot abide, recognizing that we are inseparably connected to all of it, including what is not yet upon us, including what is already gone. We are here to keep watch, not to keep. We're here to keep watch, not to keep. So encapsulates so much of the Dharma. What we come to trust more is that, um, is that in the wake of letting go, uh, the, the most uh, kind of beautiful qualities of the heart are revealed. Because when we are no longer s- insisting upon ownership, what we have, whatever is, is, is good in our lives, feels exactly like a gift. Our life feels like a gift. And so this path of of letting go, letting go actually underlies many of these, the kind of uh, qualities, these beautiful heart qualities.
That's a beautiful poem. Mm. And I'm glad you ended with the word gift. Because maybe a way to put this whole thing together is that all of these qualities is each of them a kind of a gift. And um, they're all gifts that as we give to each other, we're actually giving to ourselves at the same time. And when you give something away as a gift, whether it's material stuff or it's your time or your energy or your concern, uh, it's a way of saying I don't need it. Doesn't mean it's not valuable, but you pointed out earlier that the business of ownership is based on the sense that I need this and it's mine. Uh, to be able to say you need it for sure, you know, I give it to you. I don't need it is a is a really a statement of personal freedom. I don't need it. Um, I, rem I, I I was just thinking about um, one of the earliest phrases that toddlers learned to say, give it to me, I need it. And the whole idea of I need it, I have to have it. And when, I, when, when we don't have to, I once gave, I, I, we've had an understanding, and Jack and I talk about it from time to time. He said a long time ago, when somebody admires something that I've got, and they say, oh, I'd love to have a whatever it is like that. He said, you know, in that moment, if I can, I mean, he said, if they said about my house, I would not give it to them. But if they said it about my tie, for example, I give it to them. And people remember it forever. You probably remember something that somebody gave you in a moment because you, you liked it. I actually, following Jack's teaching, I, was, I, I had a certain scarf that I had around me that I used to wear to sit with, and it was a certain color, and it had a beaded fringe, and I was teaching somewhere, and I had the scarf with me, and some family put me up for the weekend, and when I was leaving, and thanking them for hosting me, and I put on my scarf, and the person who had hosted me said, oh, that's a great scarf, I love your scarf. And I said, here, why don't you have it? And they said, whoa, I don't know. I said, no, no, it's fine. And I gave them a scarf, and it was an immediate lesson. And I felt great to do that. And now it's 20 years later. I remember what the scarf looks like. I don't remember who the person was and who I gave it to, but I really feel so good that I never missed the scarf for a second. I don't think about the scarf. I think about the feeling I have. And they said, oh, I love that. Mm. Say here. And it's not the feeling of giving someone the scarf. It's the, it's the knowledge in the moment that I don't need it. That really the second noble truth is imperative in the mind is suffering. Every I need it is a suffering. There's plenty of things in the world that I'd love to have. Not so much, actually, because... But anyway, things change as you get old. But to admire things in the world and not need to have them is a great, is a great freedom.
the, the, uh, the second line of the 23rd Psalm of the Hebrew Bible is uh, often translated as I, I, I shall not want. But I think what it means, it's not want in terms of, you know, with lots of things we want. It's a verb that means I need it. I won't need it. And to be able to say, I'm really resting in this larger awareness of the divine. I don't need anything. That's, that's enough. I've been playing with that as an idea. I have a friend, I'm really a friend for the last 50 years, who's a, a nun in the Dominican Sisters of San Rafael. And she and I used to teach uh, psychology courses together. And we were preparing one afternoon to go teach. And uh, we were working at my kitchen table and then it was time to leave, so we gathered up all our books. And we were going out the door and I looked down at my pile of stuff and I said, uh, wait a minute, I don't think I have everything I need. And she said, sweetheart, you're never going to have everything you need. <laughs> and we thought that, I thought that was great at the time because uh, it relaxes you about going to teach or give a lecture. Then I thought later she's wrong. That, you know, we could have everything we need. I mean, we, we could not have need, that kind of need. If we got a paper, you do it with something else. If we got this, you do it with something else. That really what we're doing in, um, in, in this whole practice, I love what Joseph said about what this is about. and I like both of his 10-year-apart things. But I think that the whole thing, and the practice maybe in this moment, I've decided that this parami practice that they need to be perfected is there all ways of saying, I don't need it. They're all ways of disavowing imperative. If I, if I can be generous, I don't need it. Uh, morality is, you, you, you make things, you recognize things as a value uh, because morality means not taking stuff that isn't yours, not treating people poorly. It's against, it's taking a vow I don't need. All those impulses, I'm taking a vow that I'm not going to be held captive by those impulses. I love the one about trust, uh, honest. For being honest with people, then it's like putting all the cards on the table. It's like telling people all the information so they have as much information as you do. So you don't have an unfair advantage over them. It's treating the other person as well as you would treat yourself, really. We'll share it, or you can have it. But I don't need it for me. As long as I, there's a me that needs it. Somebody said early on in my practice days, attributing it to somebody, I don't remember who, um, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. Mm. That if there's a sense of a me here who needs, then they do suffer, because they're needy. To be able to say, there's a story in the Zen literature of um, a hermit monk 
who comes home to his very simple hut one evening, and he notices that somebody has come in and taken all his possessions, his bowl and his spoon, and the few items that he has. And he, but everything is gone. And he uh, looks out the window, and there's a beautiful full moon, which fills him. You doesn't say this, but you understand it, that the presence of the moon and his ability to enjoy it, so fills him, that he thinks about the person. He says, "I wish I could have given him the moon." You know, such a such an awareness of I don't need stuff. And this person is needy, and could I have given him another beautiful thing, I would have done it. It's like a, 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 a generosity that exceeds normal generosity. It's a generosity that comes out of compassion. That person is suffering for my need. This is the best stuff to talk about, isn't it? This is our room of a hundred adults sitting around talking about behaving themselves and the joy of it. Isn't, I mean, it's really great. I'm so happy that we're doing this instead of watching cable TV <laughs> and making ourselves so upset. And, uh, to no avail. All those in favor of that put up their hands. Okay. So you want to stay with people if they take a little five-minute walk and come back and sit? Why don't you announce that? Okay. Um, so this, uh, I guess this, this concludes the official festivities of the uh, day. <laughs> um, but uh, if um, you have energy, um, we'll take a few minutes to, uh, to walk and um, if you're, if you're tired, if it feels like, okay, that's enough, please go to bed and do that without uh, guilt. And um, if you have energy, then come on back and we'll do one final uh, silent sit together. So, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. Someone going to ring the bell? Will you ring? 15 minutes? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.